Quite the podcast last week, Mike. Are you overhearing thoughts of living with an undertaker? Listen, <laughs> I, I got to say, social media is what it is, okay? It is its own entity. And you and I are working on this new podcast project that we're pretty passionate about. And we're, I'm going to be honest and say I'm proud of. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun <laughs> with it. But when I pointed out on one of the responses to last week's podcast with the Parson Brothers that... I am still sore in the sides from all the laughing. Like I, it's true. Like that's not trying to exaggerate it, to sell it, to hype it up. This, that, that episode last week's of about an hour and change long, hour 15, hour 20 is so worth your time. I got a call, Popey. I got a call on my 570 News talk show from somebody in Elmira, shockingly, because yeah. Mike and Steve, the pride of Woolwich, but who had listened to it and said how much he and his wife enjoyed it. It is a blast. It was an awesome time. They're very well known in Elmira just because of the success they had in playing in Elmira and all their, all their friends are still around the area. So I'm sure they all watched and listened. And uh, you mentioned being sore in the sides. That's my life when they get together. It's just endless stories and you bring up players and playing time and, if only their father was here uh, still around to to listen to that one, I know he would have been proud of it because he would have been chiming in if he would have been able to watch live. I'm sure he would have called in and said, what about this guy? Remember that time you did this? Remember the time I got in a fight in the stands? And yeah, they, they have stories that go on and we could have done a five-hour podcast. Mike even messaged me the day it came out. and He said, I just watched that. Man, how funny is Steve? Like, <laughs> So he's laughing again, watching a podcast, listening to his brother that he was part of. So yeah, it was a, it was a good time. So here's what's kind of interesting in all of this. I'm just thinking as, as we're talking here, I when I first started covering the Ontario Hockey League, I worked with Rogers TV in Guelph. And some guy named Mike Parson was goalie coach not mm-hmm. right away I don't think but either way that's that's when I first got to know Mike Parson as the goalie coach for the Guelph Storm okay then my my I guess day job if you will is working at 570 News in Kitchener and at one time along the way at 570 News Steve Parson was one of our sales reps mm-hmm. that's how I knew Steve Parson I did not know that Mike and Steve were brothers and then along comes Chris Pope and you and I are kind of a, a forced marriage, if you will, in, in this mm-hmm. hockey role. We, we didn't seek each other out necessarily. You've been working with the Rogers radio stations at some points in your past. So we knew of each other. We had worked together here and there. It made sense. I'm not saying this was forced in a bad way. but Oh, I get it. You hate me. It's fine. Carry on. Well, I, I hate you by, <laughs> let's be honest. I hate you by game 53-ish. Yeah, right? the, first, the first 52 are pretty good. We yeah. and, and vice versa. Let's be yeah. honest. Yeah. yeah. But you, you spend that much time with someone eventually. <laughs> that's why we normally take the summers apart. There's that's not right. much communication. We don't hang out. We need our time away. We spend enough time in a hotel room, you trying to sleep, me snoring, watching you in your pajama pants. Like we need time away. You spend a lot of time with each other, it's but it not, works. It's not it untrue. Works. It does. But all this time. So I knew a Mike Parson. I knew a Steve Parson. I knew a Chris Pope. And until you and I started doing these games and working together, what season... Whenever we get around to a season, and that's kind of the theme of this podcast, by yeah. the way, uh, what season is it going to be for us together? Three? Four. Four? This will be season four, yeah. Wow. We're, uh, we're getting on close on that uh, overage campaign. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> never thought of that. Not, never thought of it that way. There you is, go. This, is this the longest partner you've had though? How many years do you call with Don? Well, that's see, I don't want to like really kind of jinx, jinx anything. It? Yeah, me but, either. But Torch and I did five years together on TV. Okay. Yeah. Don and I did five years together on the radio. And then along comes Chris okay, Pope, and we're so headed we got, to year four. We got two more years. But what am I, the Black Widow over uh, here? Like, come, come on, on. Rogers, <laughs> I love you. Anyway, Rogers I think it's, cable behind me. It's kind of funny that I I knew the entire trio, but didn't know the family connections until three seasons ago when you and I started working together. And anyway, hilarious. Yeah. And Steve is quite frankly a master storyteller. He oh, really it's unbelievable. Is. Were you still call, were you still calling games in Guelph on the TV side when um, they won in what oh eight or oh four sorry oh four yeah yeah but, but I was never I was never calling the games in Guelph I was the host okay gotcha. uh, doing pregame postgame here's here's a funny little story the way the way it used to <laughs> the way it used to work in Guelph is with our TV setup. It was in a hallway outside the storm dressing room where the Zamboni mm-hmm. entrance is. And so unlike when I went to Kitchener with Rogers TV later and we kind of had an old dressing room set up and there was a bench that players would come in and sit down on. And so I had to interview players before the game or between periods in a hallway standing. So, you know, I'm five foot, basically nothing yeah. as it is. Then you take. So I, I'm shorter than your average bear right from the get go. Then you add the skates to the equation and the shot for the, the TV crew was so uneven that they had to stand me on a milk crate to make me a little bit closer to the player's level. It looked better on TV. And every once in a while, the cheeky little camera person would start from the ground up and see Gary Doyle, who used to do the games with Don Cameron on radio, would chirp me every chance he got and the milk crate kind of became this little thing Funny. i've done the same thing real, real quick i've done the same thing i think it was logan stanley maybe interviewed no i can't remember who it was anyway i, I did that role for kitchener obviously on the rogers broadcast and i had to bring out a milk crate once well anyway, but on. logan stanley six five yeah. six yeah towered so, over me makes some sense but funny you bring up a guy that tall because kind of sequel to the the story of the milk crate you might remember there was a time in this league, Chris, that a bunch of famous people owned teams like, you know, Chris Pronger yeah. owned the Mississauga Ice Dogs, part of them at the time. And so as the owner, he was at a game in Guelph and my producer's like, oh, come on, we got to get Pronger on. So and, and to his credit, he came on. He was great. But there I am standing next to six foot seven Chris Pronger and he's not on skates. And I still had to stand on my milk crate for the team. I was never more. I mean, I, I've done a lot of embarrassing things in my life. That one was on the embarrassing side for me. And Pronger could not have been more gentlemanly about it. And even though I'm standing on this milk crate to do this interview, and I've also never forgotten, I the only way I could describe it, because he was still active, obviously, I, I shook his hand and it felt like I was shaking hands with a cinder block. Like I'm, there was nothing... It wasn't like you were touching a human hand. It, he, yeah. What a grip. What a Anyway, there's my story of Guelph. He was in Kitchener for a game this year, and I asked him if he would come on during an intermission, but he wanted to keep that he was there. Hush, hush. Gotcha. So I don't know if he was – like obviously a scouting trip at that time, um, but he wanted to keep that he was there quiet. But I remember 
even just introducing myself to him, I was like, this guy is an absolute monster of a human being. I feel that way every time Sarnia comes to town or we're in Sarnia and I see Darian Hatcher, like that guy, I'm terrified of him. And he's so soft-spoken and he was gracious with his time every time I've asked, but he is just so large. I couldn't imagine going into a corner with Darian Hatcher or that one famous clip. I think it was Barnaby where, no, it was... Anyway, I can't remember the player. I uh, went into the corner and he had uh, a previous game. He had made it, t- taken a cheap shot at uh, Medano. And Hatcher went in there, blatant, elbow up, going straight for the mouth, knocked out like teeth. And I just thought I, I would be terrified. I would never play hockey again. So this all started with the 04 Storm Championship team that went yeah. out to Kelowna and sadly came home utterly empty-handed. They didn't win a game while they were out there. And that turned out to be my, my last year in Guelph. I, like I said, I was doing the hosting for the Rogers TV broadcasts. Then every once in a while, I get called up in the booth to do some color. Then they bumped me over to, to Kitchener the, the following season. But speaking of Guelph, the, the head coach and general manager there right now, his name has come up a few times on the podcast, including in last week's episode with, with Mike and Steve Parson, the name of course being George Burnett. And, and it got me to thinking, we call this podcast OHL stories. And while we are not quite as long in the tooth as some of those people that we've had on the show before, uh, we we're, we're collecting a few stories along the way. And, and, you know, very well, that seems to be the cardinal rule with George Burnett. And that is to not be late. Yes, very well. <laughs> I will never be late for an interview with the Guelph storm. Uh, Greg Brady, who's a previous guest on this podcast and who I worked with for a time at Sportsnet 590, the fan also found out the hard way to not be late around George Burnett. And it was funny because that was the first time when I was talking to Greg about George, the first time I'd ever encountered anybody who had something negative to say, because my experiences with George Burnett have been nothing. And I mean, nothing but positive. And I was thinking about that because his name came up again last week. And so I, I got to know George in the 07-08 season when Kitchener hosted the Memorial Cup. And that's when that was my first year of really being on the road more uh, with the team. So obviously there was that OHL final between Belleville and Kitchener. And I saw a lot of George that year. Let's put it that way. And, and gruff for sure. The kind of guy that I wouldn't want to cross. He just kind of has that demeanor. Like, you know, I'm like, very much so. Yeah, by all means. But clearly, you know me. I try to be punctual of the two of us. I think mm-hmm. I'm the more punctual uh, broadcast partner. Yeah, absolutely. I had to ask Brady how uh, how he dealt with you or you how you dealt with all of his tardiness. Now you're having to deal with it again. I tend to be right on time, like right on time. If I'm leaving at two, I leave at two o'clock, not 158, not 159, two. Brady was hilarious to work with. His, his was the name top billing on the radio show we did. And it started at 530 in the morning. And there were many a day, many a day where Jim Lang and I would be sitting in the studio. The music would be on to start the show. And we're leaning back far craning our necks down the hallway to see if Brady's running in from the parking garage yet. So yeah, it it made for entertaining starts to our show on many an occasion, but clearly my punctuality never rubbed George Burnett the wrong way. So maybe he just, he appreciated that. Maybe he thought I was thought incorrectly, but thought I was some kind of professional, but because we got to, see each other a lot that season some you know obviously there was a an understanding of who we were Mm -hmm. and 
when the Memorial Cup rolled around and, and Belleville, even having lost that seven game OHL final to Kitchener, Kitchener was the host, the runner up for the OHL gets in anyway. And so there we are about to start the Memorial Cup at the Memorial Auditorium in Kitchener. And because that's home rink for me, I, I would, you know, just like it is for us today, Chris, we go in whatever door we need to go in. We walk wherever we want to walk because it's the home rink and you kind of know your way around and people know you while you're there. Exactly. And I, this, I'm still pretty early on in, in all of this broadcasting, the league stuff. And so the Memorial Cup's on and I just go waltzing into the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium like it's a regular season game, except during the Memorial Cup, as you well know, things are a lot different. It's it's not the Kitchener Rangers or even the OHL really running things. It's the CHL and their security and their all. So I just go waltzing in like I own the place because, you know, I'm that big of an ego and I, I think I do. Mm-hmm. I was not where I was supposed to be. And as I'm walking into this clearly semi-restricted area, there's there's George Burnett talking with uh, Pete Labardius and Rob Falds of Sportsnet off in this area to my right. And I'm just going to walk in and go over to the media room, which wasn't even in the same place because everything changed for the Memorial Cup. But I'm walking to my usual door and I get stopped by security. They're like, are you supposed to be here? I'm like, what do you mean am I supposed to be here? That's my rank. Anyway, George was the one that bailed me out. George like basically called called off security and be like, no, he's fine. Like waves me over. And so I can go sit there and, Pete and Rob and the head coach of the Belleville Bulls, like I actually belonged there, right? I'm like, ah, see that, Mr. Security Man? Yeah. <laughs> I told you, right? George so was, has got me. Yeah, George. You a problem with me, you got a problem with George. And that's because I was never late, Popey. I was never late. George George had my back because I never yeah. let him down. I said I'd be there on time for an, uh, at a certain time for an interview, and I showed up. Fast forward several years, it actually connects to, to Greg Brady when I'm working at the fan in Toronto. And so at this point, I'm doing color commentating with Don Cameron on the radio broadcasts. So much like you now on our broadcasts, it was my job as the color commentator to fill the intermissions. And you know how much fun it is to think of, gee, I've got 136 intermissions to fill every yeah, year. It's yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> but with this podcast and the success we've had, my intermissions are done for the next two years. And apparently that's all I have left. Our job, <laughs> our job is not hard, but Honestly, think of it, 136 seven-ish minute segments that you need to fill. And you try to fill it with something that's going to be interesting to the listener. Yeah, you don't want to just fill it. You want to have interesting content for the listener. Absolutely. So as it turned out at this particular time, George Burnett had just won his 600th game as a head coach in the Ontario Hockey League. Of course, I'm going to reach out to George to get him for an interview that I can air during that weekend's OHL broadcast. Mm -hmm. It only makes sense. Well, it turns out we had to play considerable phone tag. And the the last time we talked before we got to the interview, he phoned me and I was in the car driving home from the morning show. And I'm like, George, thanks for getting back to me. I'd love to do the interview right now, but I'm in the car and I can't, I won't be at the studio until such and such a time. Anyway, the guy could not have been more accommodating. It was back and forth. That was like the fourth call. Me, him, me, he gets me in the car. And I'm like, okay, please, one more time. That's all I need, just one more time. And he agreed. We set the time. I, I kept the time because that's the important thing and got the interview. But I don't know where this George Burnett is 
no personality, cruel, mean guy comes from. He's never been anything but gracious to me. I'm right with you. But there is that belief where you hear rumors of George being difficult or sometimes even standoffish. But like, you remember, we had him on this podcast when a couple of years ago, Curious George is the title of the episode. Yeah. And we asked him for time before the game against Kitchener in Guelph. And we went into his office and he sat there for like a good 45 minutes to an hour before the game and sat there and answered every question and went on like, and George is a great interview. He'll talk forever. Like when I do my pregame interview with, with him trying to fill an intermission, I get two questions out for seven minutes. <laughs> like, like It's great because he just goes on and on and on, but I've never had an like, yeah, I was late. It's my fault. It's not George being rude. It's I wasn't abiding by the rules. The rules are clearly stated. So he was just letting me know, follow the rules, kid. And I, I've never had a problem with George. I like him. If you want to hear George on this podcast again, just uh, shoot us an email, farwellandpope yeah. at gmail.com. And you'll find us all over the place on social media, uh, on Twitter at underscore Chris Pope or at farwell underscore OHL. OHL stories on Instagram. Hey, subscribe to the YouTube page too. I, I yeah. just throw that out there. OHL stories with Farwell and Pope, it's up there for sure. And just on George's note, like whether he's been rude to anyone or standoffish or just kind like you and I have, he's had a tremendous success. Is he not the second winningest coach in OHL history or second or third right now? I think third. Third behind Templeton and Kilroy, right? Or is that well, Hunter? No, Hunter. Anyway, he's yeah, up Hunter. There. The, he's, I think so. I think he'd be he's up there. fourth right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, crazy success. Anyway, that's all well, I have. Okay. Uh, we're going to have to have that conversation at some point. And, and really the, the, the big fish to land on this podcast is going to be Dale Hunter because yeah. it's, it's funny. I was, I was watching a, the NHL game this weekend, uh, one of them, uh, Washington and uh, Jersey, and, and Ovechkin scores his sixth of the season, but more importantly, the 712th of his career. And then, of course, they put up the stat. He's getting close to Esposito for sixth, I believe it was overall. And, of course, we know Gretzky, 894. Ovechkin now 712 and you and I have had this conversation many a time on the road is it going to happen well we're going to have to have the real conversation and maybe Dale would be a part of it maybe Dale would be a part of it but is Dale Hunter going to surpass Brian Kilray as winningest and I know we're talking hundreds of wins away but the way Dale is piling up those wins in London it could be seven or eight years and he'd be there so that's a simple that's a simple answer for me if he wants to he will it's, it's that simple yeah at, if he uh, wants to coach that long if he wants to coach that long he will because there's like <laughs> there's no sign of london all of a sudden falling off a cliff people like <laughs> this is he's missed the playoffs once and that was in the first year when he took over that's it that's all <laughs> like that's it it's crazy it's a it's a crazy stat to me um, and they do things right and they're going to continue to do things right. And he's a fantastic coach. And there's no, like, it's not like he's going to all of a sudden have a different team next year than he did this year. Cause they all play the same way. You, the London Knights, it doesn't matter if you have the only year I've seen them play a different style was one line. And that was Kachuk, Marner, Dvorak. Every other line, they just play the exact same way every single year and they win. So if he wants to coach that long, a hundred percent, he will pass Brian Kilmer. It's funny, we, we talked to our guest on this week's podcast about the London Knights, and, and the guest talks about that style of play and the, the skill and the speed with which they play the game. And we tried to pin him down, but he's too, he's too slick for that, on 
one of the best teams or the best team he's seen. And I mean, listen, I broadcast Kitchener Rangers games. Okay. But boy, oh boy, that 05 Knights team, like, I'm not sure I've seen <laughs> better. And I, I've, I've been in the league since 2000. So, but, and so I mean, I know, and we could start talking eras and, and look, that 07, 08 Rangers team was a, was a whale of a team, but uh, boy, oh boy, that 05 Knights team, look out the 03 Rangers team, Better than the 08, there's whole all kinds of things we could talk about. But that Didn't 05 that nice team, team lose like five games, uh, eight games, six, eight, yeah, something six. like that. Fifty-three, something, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it was, it was pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, they're they have something special down there, and I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again. I really don't. But um, that we we talk about Dale Hunter is our white whale. We need to get Dale Hunter on, and I can call him the white whale. Because we captured our white whale this week. We needed a new one. There you go. We needed a new one. And we weren't shy with the questions. We asked him the things that we have ranted about on this podcast and on our broadcast. Held them to the flame, if you will. Not really, because it's nothing too crazy. But how nice is the commissioner of the league to come on a Zoom call on a Monday afternoon with a couple of bald guys? <laughs> like, that's just great. It, uh, it shows that... Beneath that gruff exterior, the commissioner has a heart down there somewhere. I, I'll tell you why, though. I'm going to tell you why, and then we'll get it. But it's because he cares about this game like nobody's business. It's yeah. as simple. And you can say what you want, and he'll accept your criticisms and, and all of the – and, in fact, you're going to hear he, he actually accepts a couple of our uh, suggestions, which I'm very excited about. But this man cares so much about the game and so much about the players that play it. Uh, of course he's going to come on and take the opportunity to spend an hour with us talking about the game he loves so much. I wanted to ask him, though. I, I should have asked him. When's the end? 42 years yeah. as commissioner. He's getting longer in the tooth, if you will. When's the end? I wonder. After, after I'm sure he's wishing it was last year. Uh, after what he's going through right now. No kidding. Try, trying to get this league back up and running. But uh, you you mentioned it in the podcast to him as well, but like Brian Kilray told us, he told his owner, the minute David Branch isn't commissioner of this league, sell your team. And I, he's, he's leaving this league so much better than he found it. He's, whoever's going to fill those shoes has huge shoes to fill. Yeah, there's, and, and the league, right? Mm-hmm. Take all the criticisms, criticisms you want about favorites and this and that, but he's leaving the league in so much better a place than he founded in 1979 when there were just 12 teams and this guy now is regarded as and rightly so one of the most powerful men in hockey and he is a frequent voice to be sought on issues around the game of hockey and it goes far beyond a couple of bald guys in their podcast you'll hear him on uh, national sports radio on national sports tv as well talking about the game of hockey that he is so passionate about and he extended an olive branch to us, David Branch. Well, here we are, our white whale that we've been after. Mr. Branch, <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time. We really do appreciate it, especially given everything going on in the world. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, as I was saying off air before we, we joined, this has been a welcome break, this opportunity to sit around with you and talk a bit about the game and, you know, uh, some of the great people that are part of our game. So you've been uh, up to anything lately or? (laughs) (laughs) 
it's uh, it's been a whole new agenda uh, yeah. for sure, and uh, it, uh, it you know so much uh, is new, uh, including the pandemic itself. But uh, been very very fortunate. Uh, some great support around me, both uh, through the league office, our teams, and uh, others. Quite frankly, there's a lot of care, a lot of concern out there for us. Uh, not least of which is uh, the, you know, the premier of our province. He, he's been very supportive and uh, we're, we're hoping that, uh, you know, we can go down the right road to see us return and play uh, this year. And that's been our, our goal, our desire from day one. Uh, we obviously owe it to our players and we owe it to our fans, although we won't be able to play with spectators if we are in fact, uh, you know, allowed to return, but our owners and coaches and managers have been incredible and they've stayed with it. Never lost, uh, you know, the feeling that we have an, an opportunity, a chance. And that's one of the traits I put down to our great game is that it develops character. It uh, develops that never say die attitude. And that's very, very been much the case in my view. Uh, all through this, when you consider, uh, as you know, I mean, we're, we're closing in on one year since this damn thing hit us all and uh, blindsided us, and uh, it's been a bit, uh, you know, a real experience. So usually at this time of the year, David, we're all talking about teams jockeying for position, the playoffs coming, the excitement, of course, of building towards that Memorial Cup, and it's it's much different right now as we still battle through this COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen the Quebec League uh, do a kind of stop and start, but it's got some games under its skates. The The Western League is talking about getting going. The scuttlebutt we're hearing around the Ontario Hockey League is something in the way of 20, 24 games, maybe in April and May. Where are we at right now with any prospect of getting on the ice for meaningful hockey? Yeah, I mean, hey, we, we've done a lot of modeling. Uh I think Herb Morrell, who looks after scheduling purposes for us, has done over 40 different schedule models, uh, as an example. And we, we recognize that, you know, as the clock ticks, uh, we won't be able to play the desired number that we wish to or ideally wish to. But uh, we haven't set anything in stone yet uh, because we, we want to make sure we get across the finish line with, uh, you know, public health. Uh, and uh, it's a return, a uh, safe environment in which to return, and of course the government itself. So uh, we don't have anything firm yet. Obviously, we're going to be ready to go the moment we find out. What has public health said? Well, the good thing, Chris, is that first of all, uh, we're talking to them. Uh, I mean, we saw positive development. Initially, of course, uh, with the National Hockey League being allowed to return in the form of the Leafs and the Senators in this province, and then the AHL. And now the focus appears to be on us. Uh, We've developed uh, an extensive return to play uh, plan, and uh, and we've really lifted a lot of it, as, as public health suggested we do, from what the NHL model is, what the AHL model is. So we're working through that right now, and they've been very open. The dialogue has been good, 
And there's a sense that they're trying to make it work for us. So uh, that's step one, get public health on, on side. Let's just say for the sake of argument that worst case scenario in all of this is that the entire season is is washed away and you're not starting up again until September for a 2021-2022 campaign. If that worst case scenario were to come to pass, are you confident that the 20 member clubs in the Ontario Hockey League are healthy enough to withstand that? You know what? Uh, that's a, a great question. And, and Michael, it's a hypothetical question. <laughs> So I want to be cautious. I want to be careful on that. I mean, uh, one of my big concerns through all this is that, uh, you know, I don't believe there'll be any team that suddenly says, that's it, can't operate. Because, you know, the value in a franchise is the franchise itself. And uh, I know from interest out there, a lot of interest, south of the border and i i for one don't want to see suddenly you know teams when i say teams one would be too many uh have to sell their team through the financial challenges they have uh, to u.s interests and uh you know so that's something we have to work through but right now our owners uh, are committed uh, have been from day one um, to say that there aren't some hardships wouldn't be right, obviously. But uh, we're, we're hopeful that we can arrive at a position and stabilize all our teams as quickly as possible going forward and, uh, you know, get, get back on the ice. Do you have any update on any potential help that the league or teams rather would get on some of that hardships, especially financially? No update, uh, Chris. It's, a, it's an important area for us, obviously. Uh, we're having discussions with government um, to see uh, what might be there. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I back up to my earlier statement. It'll soon be a year mm-hmm. uh, since uh, we, when this thing st- happened. And, and I've always said uh, the hardships that are out there, uh, you cannot overlook them. Uh, those of us in hockey tend to think, you know, it's the only game, the only thing in town. Well, it's not. And uh, people have lost their jobs, their homes, uh, their businesses. Uh, so we recognize the sensitivity uh, there. Uh, I mean, the one thing that our teams do bring to a community is hope in itself. And it's good for the mental health uh, part of the uh, not only our players, but our fans, our communities. And in many of our communities, we're the number one sport entertainment property in that community. And and the economic benefits uh, are not insignificant. So it's for that reason, we hope we can generate uh, some interest to support us to get back on the ice, to get back playing. And uh, that's a very important uh, part of the overall formula for us. And, so here we go since March 11th. We have not played a game, balance of the season. Uh, we, we shut down. Uh, no playoffs, no Memorial Cup. We haven't played a game yet this year, of course, and on and on and on. And through it all, uh, the one thing that really uh, I'm proud of, our owners, as they should, uh, had obligations uh, for scholarships. And uh, 
we expend just over $3 million annually. And, and our owners have responded to all that, you know, and, uh, and that's huge. That's important. And so it's not just take, it's also about giving. And uh, I'm really proud of that piece. You talk about that March 11th date, David, and that is etched in the minds of Chris and I, because we had just finished broadcasting a Rangers storm game in Guelph. And we expected there would be another game two nights later because that was a Wednesday. So Friday, obviously, five games left in the season and so on and so forth. And that's when it all came crashing down, not just for the Ontario Hockey League, but NBA, NHL, et cetera. But we were, we were there that night broadcasting a game. And all of a sudden, there have been no games to broadcast since. In the, in the year, there's no playbook for this. You can be a commissioner of the OHL for 40 years and you obviously have never gone through this before. What have you learned? What challenges have been overcome in the past almost full 12 months? Well, I, I mean, I wish, Mike, uh, there was an easy answer to but what you, you learn from all your experiences. Uh, one for sure is don't take anything for granted. <laughs> you know, uh, every day wake up and be thankful you're there and, um, and as well appreciate what you're able to do, uh, etc. Uh, I mean, we... Uh, we recognize the role we play with young people and, and uh, we've got to continue to find a way uh, going forward, how we can respond to their needs. And, and, you know, that's something we've always understood, but now I think we have learned about technology more and more and the use of technology and how our teams uh, will coach their players going forward, how they will communicate with players, families, billets, uh, communities, uh, on and on and on. You know, I think it, it's, it's really, really important. And that's been one of the things we've taken away from this is, uh, is the use of technology. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, the way we do business will never be the same, uh, no matter what industry you're in largely. Right. And so, uh, I think responding to some of those situations is, is really, really important. And, uh, all our teams are conducting Zoom calls. I know I, I, I was, I read with interest there where Mike McKenzie, uh, coach GM of the Rangers, conducted minor hockey clinics, uh, et cetera. That's turning a negative into a positive. That's utilizing technology uh, to his credit, to the Rangers' credit. You know, and then Joe Birch is, is putting together a function, as you know, undoubtedly, on women in sport and uh, how that whole area is growing. And so, I, I, I mean, these are the type of things that more and more, I, I believe, we've come to realize, recognize, and respect how we go forward and do and conduct our affairs. If there isn't a season this year, has there been any talk about age restrictions and maybe moving those to allow players to play in this league that would have missed out on their overage season or anything? Yeah, Chris, no, none. No. Okay. And, and let me let me qualify that too, to the extent that um, we have never discussed what ifs if we don't play. Our focus, our energy, our time has been when we return to play, and uh, hopefully we don't get to that time where we suddenly have to say, "All right, what about all these what ifs?" I think one of the incredible uh, areas that we're trying to find some answers to, and I'm sure you know what you know this with your knowledge of uh, who we are and, and uh, 
one thing and another, but is what about the 2005 born hockey players who are aspiring to play in the OHL? And when are we going to have a, a draft <laughs> and, and one thing or another? And of course, we haven't been able to evaluate these players uh, for all intents and purposes. That's one of our key challenges. And, it, and it's interesting because that whole phenomena is also part of what the NHL is going through. And how are, are they going to properly evaluate players that are playing in the CHL, as an example, uh, and conduct their draft this July as they're planning to? So there's uh, some interesting things there, to say the least, that we all face. And uh, when you look at the NHL, we're, uh, you know, we're very similar in many of the things that we have facing us going forward. Obviously, we, we can't bring the commissioner on this show without talking about where we're at and, and what we're hoping to achieve for any kind of a season and ultimate championship for major junior hockey this year. But this is all about stories. And and I think a lot of people, Mr. Branch, want to know. I, I mean, I don't think anybody in this game aspires to the role where they come out onto a, the ice in an arena once a year and get booed by thousands of people. Nobody aspires to that. At how many points along the way have you asked, what the hell was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, actually, never. You know, uh, you wear it almost as a badge of honor. Um, I can remember as a young guy uh, being down uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens watching uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and Detroit Red Wings playing, okay? And uh, to me, one of the all-time greatest players ever was Gordy Howe. And you know what? The fans would start booming as soon as Gordy touched the puck. And I remember turning to my dad saying, why do they do that? And he just says, Dave, because he's the best player in hockey, you know, and, and uh, they're, they're just trying to influence them somehow, some way. So I, I wear that almost like I say, as a badge of honor and I don't take it personally. And, uh, it's just a, a phenomenon that's really evolved uh, over time. And uh, I'm not alone in, you know, some of the response that I get when I go out in the ice. I'm sure fans just do it now because that's what everyone does. I'm sure yeah. some, most of them like you. They're just like, oh, we always boo when he comes out. So don't, yeah, I wouldn't I, take it personally if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, Chris. That's the way I look at it, quite frankly. So, you know, and it's nice to be recognized. How, or how um, happy are you with? the product that the OHL is right now? Um, I'm extremely happy, quite frankly. Um, uh, I'm not just saying this because I work with the OHL, et cetera, et cetera, but we got some great young minds of the game, coaching, managing our teams. And I really believe we've been on the leading edge on the style of play and the emphasis on speed and skill of the game. Understanding, it's a physical game, and we don't ever want to lose that. So that part has has all been good. And uh, I can remember going back one, I'll say maybe certainly off-season, a few years ago, Ken Hitchcock was coaching St. Louis Blues at the time, you know. And I, I had met, Ken, when he was coaching in the Western Hockey League at Memorial Cups and the like, and then he was part of our national junior team coaching staff. So at any rate, they were talking about Robbie Fabry. And, you know, uh, Robbie playing uh, 
you know, in St. Louis, you know, uh, that first year, I believe he got hurt. And then is he coming back to St. Louis or is he going to go back to Guelph? And, and uh, you know, Mr. Hitchcock was very complimentary. First of all, he said, hey, listen, young players today are that much better coached and prepared. He said the CHL does an outstanding job. And he went on to talk about, uh, you know, uh, I watch a lot of CHL hockey whenever I can because I learn a lot. And I take what they're doing and apply it, you know, to where I'm at here in the NHL with St. Louis. And that kind of blew me away. And I was driving to the, uh, to the office. And, and, and when I got there, I sent him uh, an email, I believe, and uh, just thanked him. And, and Hitch being Hitch, he, he immediately came back and he says, hey, Dave, uh, I meant what I said. You guys do a great job. And anytime I can support you guys, I will. So I, I, I think, you know what, our, our young coaches and general managers, and not all our coaches are young, but I mean, we got a good blend there with experience. You know, you look at a George Burnett next door in Guelph, and you got uh, Mike McKenzie uh, in Kitchener, and you got the Hunters down the, down the way, and et cetera, et cetera. Good experience but all are great hockey minds. And, uh, uh, and, and, I, and I know Kitchener fans won't like this when I say that, but I, I give a lot of credit to the Hunters. Uh, they, they were the first team in my mind that really understood that uh, speed and skill uh, are two of the most important factors. And let's not get hung up on the size factor all the time. And, and you look at a couple of those teams initially when they had success. I, I mean, Robbie Shrimp and they can go on down the line. I mean, they were a joy to watch, but they led the way. And now most of our teams have gone that way as well. Okay, you open the door. I'm going to bash right through it then. Why are the London Knights your favorite OHL team, Commissioner? <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. I get that a lot, right? I know yeah. you do. I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, they've had a lot of success, right? And so uh, it's got to be because the league favors them, right? Uh, yeah. As an example. So, I mean, uh, I've got a lot of favorite teams. Uh, the last time I counted, I think it was 20 of them. So. <laughs> like your favorite kids, you know. very diplomatic. Well, you got to not like a couple in there. <laughs> well, hey, listen, I, 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 you know, you talk about uh, storytelling. I can always recall when I first started with the league, uh, there was 12 teams. All right. And I did a bit of an inventory and you know what? I, I got to tell you, uh, there was a lot of teams that I know I wouldn't want my son to go to. All right. And uh, that was to me just all part of the recognition of that. We had to take the next step, uh, both in the development of the player, but as well, the person. And, and our league has, has really responded well to that. And uh, I'll tell you, I, there's not one situation where I wouldn't want my son to go to. And that's how I measure everything. You know, would you let your son go there, as an example? And uh, we've come a long way. Uh, it's a credit to our owners for getting the right people. And as well, I think success, you know, there's new, new bars continuously being set. And if you want to compete, you better, you know, respond to the needs of the environment 
in terms of players and, uh, you know, the professional development they get, you know, the coaches and the, the uh, various skill coaches, strength coaches, psychology coaches, all the necessary off-ice training and equipment facilities, you know, all of that. I mean, wow, it's huge. It's uh, really rewarding from where I sit. You mentioned when you started there was 12 teams, now 20, and you talked earlier about interest from the states. What are your thoughts on expansion? Right now, um, I'm I'm really neutral on that, Chris. I I mean, um, I know that uh, when we added three teams in relative short order, uh, that would have been St. Michael's, Brampton, and Mississauga back at the time. Um, you, you know, in my mind, and from hockey people who especially were scouts and that at the NHL level, uh, they felt that the overall quality of our league dipped a little bit and it impaired uh, the level of development uh, for a period of time. And that really, you know, certainly stuck with me. And uh, uh, the one thing I believe in is that, you know, we have a very educated fan base. You, you can't fool them. They know, you know, they know what they're seeing. They know what hockey is, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So mindful of that. And uh, I think that uh, at this current level, the current player talent pool, I think we really balance out well. And we're very fortunate with having, uh, you know, uh, the player talent pool, quality of players, and the number of teams that complement that. When you sit around those regular meetings with the Board of Governors, uh, from expansion to realignment, how, how often does that come up? And will we ever see, for example, a Northern Division? Uh, Mike has some ideas, if you're I, curious. I'm more than happy. I'll come and make a presentation. I'll, I'll bring slides, props, whatever you need. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the North-South, uh, factor cannot be overlooked here, okay? And in my mind, in our mind, quite frankly, and we don't have a northern division because uh, we don't want families and players to, to, you know, think that we're geographically situated in such a way that, hey, if I go north, nobody will ever see me, type thing, or or whatever the case might be. And uh, for that reason, we have deliberately spread. Sault Ste. Marie, North Bay, and Sudbury among uh, the divisions and, uh, and so forth. Uh, so I, I, I think that, uh, you know, our strength is spreading our centers around equally and providing equal opportunity to uh, draft and recruit players. So I think that's one of the leading aspects, uh, Mike, that I can say to that. So is that a no to realignment then in the near future? <laughs> You should never. Well, the one thing I've learned through the pandemic, you know, <laughs> never say no, right? And uh, you know, so it uh, once again, you look at uh, the way our divisions are currently constructed. Uh, there's a and conferences. There's there's a quote unquote travel team in each conference, right? Uh, we we've kind of tried to bring balance to that. Uh, it's remarkable how close all our teams would travel in a given year based on mileage and, and such things. And, and that's important. So, um, but you never know. Uh, there may be a reason to, to in fact, consider realignment. 
you talk about those Northern teams and not wanting someone to think that their kid won't be seen on the heels of that. We've been to a couple of Mississauga games where the attendance is, let's say sparse. How important is it for this league to have at least a team centered in the GTA? Hey, it's ideal if we can, um, you know, there's been, as we all know, some real uh, trials and tribulations in, in trying to, uh, realize that and uh, and so forth i give uh, the current owner uh, elliot kerr you know every credit in the world as he works hard to make it happen in mississauga and he's passionate about the community and, and about it working but i think there's a sense of uh importance to that uh as it is to be in all the major uh markets in, in the province quite frankly like a to, to not have a team in Ottawa would 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 be bothersome, uh, and then you could go on down the line uh, to any number of centers. So it, it's important. Speaking of Ottawa, we had Brian Kilray on a recent episode, and he told us he told us that he told his owner that if Dave Branch is ever no longer the commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League, he should sell his franchise. So how long has Killer been on your payroll exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Almost as long as the Hunters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Killer. Uh, there's only one killer. Eh? And uh, you know the one thing? When I joined the league, and that goes back to 1979, I, I had a few concerns. And uh, one of them was Brian Kilray uh, from the standpoint of, you know, I'm, I'm younger than what he is. Uh, he had all this experience. Uh, why would he want to listen to a guy like me or, or whatever the case may be? And I can honestly tell you from day one, I mean, he was so respectful, so supportive. And the one thing that you saw about Killer is that he's a team player. And it was league first on everything we did. And, uh, and I'm not just saying that. Uh, he a remarkable, remarkable man. And another guy who was on the leading edge of understanding the way the game should be played, the way the game was going on the ice, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he was such a character, is such a character. So just, just, I, uh, f- I'm, I'm sorry, Dave, but just, I wanted to follow up on 1979, 40 coming up on two now, 42 years as commissioner of this league, but born in the Maritimes, you're a New Brunswick boy, you play NCAA hockey and become the top executive in the Ontario Hockey League. How does that come to pass? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, those of us from the, the Maritimes aren't very smart. So I made a few bad choices initially, right? <laughs> 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 the bottom line, I, was, uh, I wasn't good enough to play in, in the OHL back in the day and, uh, and so forth. So things worked out and it worked out really well for me, uh, quite frankly. So, uh, but I'm really, really proud of my roots in, in Atlantic Canada. Uh, the people down there are second to none. Uh, one of my boys married a, a gal from PEI, uh, which made me very proud uh, as an example also. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting road to say, to say the least, but uh, the, the person that, influenced me the most uh, from a very young guy going on up was Jim Gregory, uh, the late Jim Gregory. 
and uh, there was no better person uh, in my mind and uh, just an outstanding hockey person and for whatever reason he took a liking to me helped me along the way and uh, was always there to support and mentor and coach me along along the way so uh, uh, I've been really fortunate with the people that I, I've had around me. 42 years ago, how did the whole thing come about for anyone who isn't familiar with your story? How did you get into that role? Yeah, I, I mean, it. Uh, I was with uh, the forerunner of Hockey Canada, the CAHA, and uh, had, had moved to Ottawa. And I was really enjoying the city of Ottawa. I had a, an exciting position uh, with the CAHA and was enjoying that very much. And... Uh, the uh, OHL at that time was going through some trials and tribulations and uh, they let one commissioner go, hired another one, six weeks later, fired him. And then they called and said, Hey, would you be interested? And the one thing that the OHL appealed to me was that it would bring me from the hockey Canada or CAHA position of being that much further removed from the game on the ice bring me closer to the action. And that, that really appealed to me. And, and I can remember, you know, um, I phoned my dad and I said, Hey dad, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And his quick response was, are you crazy? These guys are, 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 are you know, look at what they're doing. And I said, that's it, dad. They got to make me work. You know, how many guys can you fire? Right. So, and I think that was part of it, a big part of it. So, yeah, so I, I was uh, fortunate to, uh, to get the opportunity. And, uh, and, and to that story, I really believe they recognized we got to make this guy work because, you know, the public were a little, you know, up in arms about what was going on. And there was some other things around the O at that time. So, yeah, it was, it's been an interesting ride. It's always interesting, Dave, when we talk to anybody even remotely connected to the game of hockey, the visions start as kids of one day hoisting the Stanley Cup. And then once we get into the game and, you know, we we recognize what our limitations might be, what our ceiling might be. Is it going to be coaching? Is it going to be managing? You don't hear often about the people that end up as executives like like you have. Is there a point along the path where you think I might want to work in a front office or was it just the way it panned out for you? Yeah, Mike, um, you see, uh, one of my passions is coaching, okay? And, and I coached for years, up until about four years ago, in minor hockey. And I really, really loved it. And uh, it gave me such great perspective from the players and families, their views on the game. And, uh, you know, I got to see firsthand how bad the officiating is, you know, and on and on. But... Um, I, I really wanted to get into the industry when I when I saw that I wasn't good enough on the ice to be a player. And my first initial focus was to get into coaching. And uh, so at any rate, uh, I actually was hired to go and coach uh, one of the uh, farm teams of the Chicago Blackhawks in the old IHL, okay, International Hockey League. And was really, you know, getting ready to, to do that. And uh, I was, I think, around 24 years of age. And I, I was worried about my age in relation to uh, the age of the, of the players. 
So then I was talking to my mentor, Jim Gregory, and there was a, a job opportunity with the OHA. Okay. And I went to him and I said, Jim, should I apply for that? If you were me, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, uh, Jim said, you know what, Dave, that might be a lot better at this stage of your career to get involved in that type of uh, uh, position. So a long story short, I applied. I was successful. I was with the OHA for about four years, learning a lot. I had a great mentor there and a gentleman by the name of Bill Hanley, who's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And then uh, an opportunity came with the CAHA. And I uh, seized that opportunity. And then there for a couple of years when the OHL came along. So my desire wasn't to be so much in the front office. My desire and one of the principles of, of getting back to the OHL, as I said earlier, or getting to the OHL was to get closer to the game and feel the excitement and hopefully be able to bring some influence uh, for the game, making it better uh, for the game, for the players, etc. This league, Mike talked about at the top, we've had a couple characters on recently. This league is full of characters, especially behind the bench and in the front office from Sherry Bass and Bert Templeton. You mentioned Killer, Larry Maverty. Do you ever, or do you remember any, let's say, run-ins with some of those characters? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, first of all, uh, they've all been so very respectful. Okay. Um, I, I, uh, I can't recall any time really when, you know, they were publicly demeaning or upset. All right. We have good discussions. That's part of the beauty of, of the game, right? You get into some real good dialogue and it can get heated, but you know, I always wanted to work on a line there. I never want to say anything to say, if I'm talking to, um, Larry Mavity. Uh, I wouldn't ever want to say anything to him that I wouldn't want him saying to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, at, at any rate, I, I mean, it's it's been a, a real, real uh, interesting ride, Chris, from that standpoint. And a guy like Mav, very early on, I can recall, and uh, he was coaching the Belleville Bulls at the time, and he's up in Sault Ste. Marie on the weekend. <laughs> and this was before we had video, all right? So now we had a bench clearing brawl in Sault Ste. Marie. Okay. And uh, this to me says a lot about Larry Matt. Okay. So Monday morning, I get a call from Matt and I thought, uh oh, here we go. So at any rate, he starts into, you know, uh, just want you to know, Dick Branch, I sent my team and you would have as well. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Matt, that gave you too much information. Just hold on here. Let's talk this through. But that was Matt, you know, and he was upset uh, with something that had occurred, but he wasn't blaming anybody. And he was taking ownership, right, of of what had happened. And and I mean, remarkable person, Larry Mavity. And and, and another little story about Matt is that now he's in Kingston coaching and uh, there was a strike among a certain union of, of city officials. And if, I, if I remember correctly, I think it was the electricians or something, but it, it resulted in the Kingston Memorial Center uh, shutting down, couldn't play, okay? And that was a, that happened very quickly. And, and that 
you know, it was a real challenging piece because we're getting down near the end of our schedule. And uh, as I think you guys both know, it's tough to reschedule at the best of times. So uh, I, I'm talking to the owner of Kingston and on and on and back and forth. And then out of the blue, Matt calls me. He says, Dave, he says, uh, do you, are you okay if I try and see if we can't play? Right? And I said, of course, Matt. Go ahead. You know? And, I mean, this illustrated to me, Mav related to all levels of people, all different types of people. And he always took time with, uh, with everyone. And uh, somehow, some way, and this is incredible when you think of it, he was able to get the union to agree that they would staff the game as required, and that game in Kingston could be played while the rest of the strike was still in place. And that was Larry Mather, and that was him. And, you know, I mean, he, he was an incredible person. And uh, we lost a special person with Mav very recently. Oh, did we ever. Uh, it's, it's interesting. When you bring up that, that first story about Sault Ste. Marie, the, the brawl, and, you know, you would have done it too. And it, it, it makes me think, what a juxtaposition I find it to be, Dave, that the game that was there in the infancy of your time as commissioner and, and the players that have shared stories on this podcast already about the kinds of Donnie Brooks, quite frankly, that were seen on a regular basis in the game. You of course are, are well-regarded and rightly so in my opinion for your evolution in this game around safety, around checking to the head, blindside hits, you name it. How uncomfortable does it make you when those stories are such a part of the fabric of the game of 40 years ago, if at all. I'm not uncomfortable with it, uh, Mike. It, you know, uh, not proud of everything that occurred, but it, it wasn't isolated just to the OHL. You know, it was the way hockey, some people would say, was played back then, uh, etc. And fortunately... Uh, we were able to make some significant adjustments. Uh, I, one of the things that I guess I'm most proud of is that in 2006, we were the first league at any level, pro, amateur, minor, to put in uh, the fact there's no such thing as a legal check to the head. And wow, when that, when that happened, I mean, there was a lot of concern expressed by certain hockey people are going to ruin the game, going to take hitting out of the game, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, where, you know, I feel fortunate is that, you know what, I uh, did a lot of research on head injuries and concussions to find out, you know, as we were building out, you know, new protocols and process on how to deal uh, with head injuries. And you, you got to see, that, you know, and I, I, I said this very early on, concussion was a bad word that they used right away. What concussion did is disguise the fact that it was a brain injury. Not a concussion, it's a brain injury. And, and so for that reason, I'm not so, so sure a lot of people initially understood the severity of concussions and what the uh, everlasting effects could be now or in the future for a young person, right? So, uh, and, and you know what, that's, a, that's another thing too that, that uh, we had great support on is that we happen to have some of the best 
athletic therapists at any level of the game in our league, true professionals that care for our players and understand the, uh, the care of our players. And uh, they, they were on the leading edge of, of working with the league to develop protocols that many other leagues have adopted, our whole concussion management program of baseline testing. You know, that was a huge step for our league at the time. And, and uh, you know, now the entire CHL has followed that way as well, you know. And, uh, but hey, we, we learned a lot from other leagues, just like other leagues have learned from us. So it's, uh, it's been a process. And uh, I, I just think, once again, we're fortunate that we had the support we did among our owners to, to make some of the significant changes. And, you, you know, Mike, the fighting rule, right? And uh, you and Chris, presumably you were probably close to it as well when we started to bring in these rules about fighting and putting a cap, right? And, uh, and it's really interesting. I mean, when we started doing the analytics on fighting and who was fighting, okay, the one thing that really jumped out at me was, you know what? There's a, only a few players that are giving fighting a bad name, you know, because they were doing it all. And that sounded like you couldn't say that publicly back then, right? Uh, but when we, when we, like I said, put in, you know, you can only have three fights or, or whatever the case may be, people thought, they're ruining the game, you know. You know what? 95% of our players probably only had one fight in a given year. So, no, we're not ruining anything. So safety is, is huge. And that's been a big, I think, uh, a, re a real good statement for our league as we've gone forward. You yourself have always been the guy in my mind that has led that safety thinking, always forward thinking on keeping the players safe and making changes to the game, like you mentioned, with the fighting rule, um, with the head check rule. Um, how important was it for you to instill in everyone's mind that the safety of the players being the age that they are is the utmost importance? That was key, you know, and, and I think, Chris, what you're really saying here in, my, in many ways is that, uh, you know, working on and fostering a culture, okay, and, uh, you know, with our 20 teams, and I view uh, the position of commissioner uh, with 20 teams no different than a coach with 20 players, and uh, I really believe the good coaches develop a culture, a winning culture, a winning tradition and and with that comes a number of values right as to how you conduct yourself on and off the ice so i mean it took time and we all were in this together and i, I think you know what uh i think part of it was some of the steps we took that weren't universally accepted suddenly you know in a short period of time people saw you know what this is not bad maybe this is the right thing to do, right? And, and so that kind of got the ball rolling so that we could do more and more things. And I kept hoping that we don't screw it up too much and have one really go off the rails. And, uh, but we, and we never did. Because you, you would vet things through committee and uh, a lot of discussion. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a culture. And, uh, and, and you know what? We do deal with young people, pure and simple and try and put uh, and look at things through the, the lens of a parent. And if it was your kid, et cetera, et cetera. 
if we had a VCR sitting beside us and access to the VHS tape of the 1981 OHL season, in particular, uh, the team that went on to win the championship that year, among the highlights on that tape of the championship team would be a bit of behind the scenes stuff that happened through the season, including a charity game that was played during that year. He, I think he knows this is all I could get. I, I joked with you before we started, Dave, you're a very well insulated man uh, trying to find as much dirt as we could just for fun here. Uh, but I, I guess there was a game I'm speaking of course, of the 81 Kitchener Rangers that won the Memorial cup. And there was a game that year uh, in a charity capacity against the Waterloo regional police and a fresh faced young new ish in 81, two years as commissioner in the OHL uh, played in that game against the police service in Kitchener with the Rangers. Uh, do you remember the game and, and how did your skates feel that night particularly? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was auditioning uh, to be an over overage player. Okay. <laughs> uh, golly. Um, I do remember that game. Okay. Uh, and uh, <laughs> actually what it was, what it was, okay, <laughs> I'm uh, in the dressing room getting ready uh, with the team, which was good. Actually, the players were being really, really good. And so uh, I'm one of the last to leave the room, okay, because I got tied up talking to some people outside. And when I went to put my gloves on, they were filled with shaving cream. So that, that's what happened there. And uh, – I never did find out who the culprit was, but I had a good idea. But <laughs> okay, well, I won't. I won't name the culprit, although they had skates instead of gloves, which is interesting. But I will. I will say this much: the culprit said your performance that night indicated that you made the right choice by becoming the uh, commissioner. I'm just. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I. I won't argue with that. But that was a fun experience. And, Let's hear uh, who you think the culprit was, and then we can judge by Mike's face whether no, you're correct no, or not. No, no, I, I'm very cautious. I, I could write a book, Chris, but i got to be very careful. I'm going to get people to pay me not to, not to write the book, you see. So, no, it, uh, it was all done in jest. And you know what? I found out how good that Waterloo Regional Police team was. I mean, as memory serves me, they were maybe defending uh, champions in the police league, right? And uh, yeah, but it was great, great time, great experience, great charity, and the Rangers. Uh, I really appreciated them letting me be part of it. There's no doubt that COVID is probably well. It is your biggest challenge as commissioner in this league. Before all of this, what would you say has been your biggest challenge? Oh golly. We, we had uh, the situation a couple of years ago, Chris, where there was a movement where <clears throat> people were saying that uh, we should pay our players, okay, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and that was a real challenge, quite frankly. And, and uh, I mean, the one thing we had built out over time with our teams was programmed to support the player our scholarship program, the best in equipment, mental health programs, um, on and on and on. Their, their expenses were all looked after, and now they want to be paid, okay, and, uh, and so forth. And when I say they want to be paid, 
the majority of the players had no idea what was going on, uh, you know, and, and, and had no interest in it. And it's like everything else in life. You get uh, some who have a particular view or attitude as to why they think something should happen. And, and my biggest concern is that if there had been a successful action to say that we must pay the players, it would have clearly resulted in a lot of the things we do for players having to be taken away. So as to allow the economic viability of a junior hockey franchise, you know, it's uh, it's not what people think that, you know, it's a, it's a way to, to make money owning a team, the real value, the real way to sustain your investment and to hopefully increase your investment at the end of the day is when you sell the franchise and the appreciation of the franchise. But that, that was a very concerning, difficult, challenging period when we went through that. And, and fortunately, um, the province of Ontario uh, supported our position and uh, they put in a regulation where our players are amateur student athletes. And, uh, and I think that really serves us well, quite frankly, and serves the players well. Speaking of players, uh, I think back when we just talked about that 81 Rangers team. So my bias notwithstanding as the Kitchener kid and, and grew up watching those teams, but it makes me think of Brian Bellows. And not too long after Brian Bellows in the Ontario Hockey League, there was a guy named Eric Lindros. And then, and then there was a guy that played most of his junior career not far from you in, in Whitby by the name of John Tavares. And then, of course, there was a Connor McDavid. And I recognize that this is much like asking about franchises and favorite children, but is there a player... Dave, that really just lit it up for you and you thought, gosh, we're so lucky to have this guy in our league. <laughs> well, all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so many more. And so many more. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, we've been blessed with some of the incredible, incredible uh, talented players, as you described, you know, and uh, I mean, there's always those players that had fabulous junior hockey careers, but never went on to play in the National Hockey League, shall we say. Uh, and, and sometimes they get lost. Like I, I, uh, one player that always stood out to me was Ernie Godden, who played in Windsor for the Spitfires. And uh, incredibly talented player. And, and I often think that if he had come along now, as opposed to back then, when it was all about size, because Ernie, you know, wasn't a very big player, Okay. But by today's standards, his skill set is right where so many gifted players are. So he, he was one, uh, you know, that really stood out to me. But, uh, yeah, we, we've had some incredible, incredible talent. Hard to miss a guy that scores 82 goals, eh? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. Think about that. I that's mean, a I season, by the way, kids. Yeah, that's in one season. That's not a career. That's <laughs> yeah. a season for Ernie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned Ernie as your favorite player. Do you have a team that you remember watching throughout your time where you were like, this might be the best OHL team I've ever seen? Besides the London Knights, you mean? Yeah, but, yeah every year. Yeah, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, you know what? Um, I lose track of the years here, but there was a Peterborough Peaks team uh, in that infamous egg-throwing contest in Regina. Okay, that was very early on, I guess. That might have been 1980 or thereabouts. They, they, were, they were an incredible team. Uh, 
you know, and, and there wasn't any weakness there. They had a little bit of everything. Um, I mean, uh, but there's been several, Chris, you know. Uh, best junior team I ever saw was the 1964 Toronto Marlboros. Okay. And uh, wow, you know, they, and they had a lot of players go on uh, to play professionally, which isn't the only judge, uh, right? But they, they, uh, they were a special group for sure. What was the uh, egg throwing incident in Regina? Yeah. I'm not familiar with that one. That was the Memorial Cup. Mike Keenan was coaching the Peterborough Peets. And uh, it was a three-team Memorial Cup, and uh, Cornwall, uh, Regina, <clears throat> and the Peaks. And uh, so, at any rate, there was allegations that <clears throat> when the Peaks lost a game uh, to, uh, I guess it was Cornwall, they did it deliberately so as to influence the order of finish for the final seedings for the, the tournament. And that really got the ire of the uh, hometown fans of the Regina Pats. So they showed up <clears throat> the next game. Uh, some farmer made a lot of money because everybody had eggs. And uh, oh my goodness, it was, it wasn't very nice. Let me just say that. So that was, that was quite our story. Is that the Jeez. craziest thing you've seen in a rink? Actually, it probably was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was. And, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I've never felt unsafe in a building, uh, as an example, but that day with the eggs and the attitude and the environment, it was pretty frightening. I only ask cause we had a former OHL goalie on last week and he talked about being down in Windsor and getting pop dumped on him during the play. And I've heard stories back in the day of fans throwing batteries and stuff when players would walk on the ice yeah. back in the day when it was a little crazier than it is now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, that, that barn in Windsor was unique. <laughs> that's a good oh, word for goodness. it. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Before we let you go, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, realignment, of course, which is a passion of both of ours, but I, I, I can't let it go without asking if there's any opportunity, Dave, that we could uh, reevaluate. And again, I offer my services to make a presentation at any board meeting in the future to uh, do away with three stars and make it a player of the game at some point. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Send me your thoughts. Okay. You know, I, you, you know that that's really changed. And, and uh, to your point, you know, so what, what is your leading thought behind that? Uh, I find it seems to me that uh, they just tend some, some rinks don't take it very seriously and just, give the stars to the, the home players, regardless of the outcome of the game. And I, I just think if you're going to do three stars, they should be the three best players. So if you, if you make it a player of the game, you eliminate any opportunity for homerism. And I'm probably the biggest homer that there is. Mike strongly yeah. feels that two of the stars should be to the winning team, one star to the losing team, unless there's a, a rare uh, anomaly. Yeah, and, and I've experienced those same thoughts, quite frankly. So there's something to be said about that, Mike. Yeah, we'll, we'll discuss that among the group, for sure. Happy okay, so, to make the presentation. See, Popper, we're on the same wavelength, the commission I. There you this go. This is good. Yeah. That's, that's one thing Mike's really vocal about. And now that I have you here, I told myself, I've mentioned it on the podcast numerous times, when we get Mr. Branch on, I will ask him. So can you tell me the process behind 
um, a suspension before I have a secondary question. What is the process from the league's point of view when there is a hit that is deemed suspendable? Well, uh, the one thing is that with uh, the advent of, you know, more sophisticated, shall we say, technology, we now have a library and we catalog all our various types of suspensions for different transgressions, shall we say. And it, it's, it's then uh, working with your team to develop a value system about when we first started working hard to uh, try and eliminate as much as possible blows to the head. I mean, we were at 10, 12 games per incident, and, and we've been able to lower that uh, to, uh, you know, uh, provide and not take away a player's opportunity, depending on. This, the seriousness of it, right? So you, hmm. there's a number of factors you, you look at in, in terms of speed, uh, you know, was it deliberate, uh, on and on and on. And then you have precedence and you uh, try and develop some cons- consistency in that fashion, Chris. Okay. Mike had the suggestion for the three stars. My suggestion on this suspension front is just a simple tweet from the league Every time, because often as media members, we find ourselves having to refresh the media notes page on the OHL website repeatedly, trying to figure out when is the suspension coming down? Has it been handed down? We often, we sometimes hear from other media members that it's been handed down, but it's not on the site, so on and so forth. I just think a simple tweet every suspension would go a long way. That's it. You're talking about communication. Yeah. 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 And that's fair comment. Our teams say the same thing. And sometimes, uh, you know, we get caught up if I'm on the road somewhere or, and I got a great partner in Ted Baker. He, he does uh, the review and gathering of information on all our suspensions now. And, and I'm not saying it's his fault, far from it, uh, but we like to communicate at the end of the day. And, and uh, sometimes our schedules don't always line up. I would love like the Brendan Shanahan uh, back in the day, the videos and they show the play, but I, I understand that we're not the National Hockey League. <laughs> Are you on Twitter yourself, Dave? Do you, do you keep social media accounts? Uh, I hey, uh, do I have a, a Twitter account? No. Do I follow it? Yes. And Instagram, you know, TikTok, you name it. <laughs> that you're a step ahead of us. David Branch <laughs> just mentioned TikTok. That is awesome. <laughs> Very much appreciate the time, sir. Uh, I know we covered a lot of ground and, and took some of your valuable time, but what the heck else are you doing? There's not a, there's not a season yet, so, uh, but always appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. As I said, I, I really enjoyed this opportunity. Thanks for, for inviting me. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.